no matter what type of financial status, social standing, or relationship you may acquire, there will always be a certain level of contentment that simply cannot be achieved. Our soul is hungry for something that only Jesus can provide. In this series, we will uncover our deepest desires. So prepare your heart for a word from God. So excited to, to be back with uh, part two of this series, Soul Hunger. And uh, this morning we're in part two. And we are covering this idea of what are we learning from our deepest desires? I know Cody mentioned a little bit about that in the little earlier, but this week for part two, I want to talk to you about this idea. This is who I am. This is who I am. And I want to be honest with you, there are times in my life, there have been times in my life where I'm not really sure who I am. I mean, I know that I'm a child of God. I'm Ariel's husband. I'm Harper and Jude's dad. And sometimes that's my identity and those things. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with being known as their parent or her husband or the, you know, the pastor of City Lights Church or just, you know, um, there's many different identities and labels that have been, been placed on me in my life. But what I want to answer today are a couple questions for us. I think there are some desires that we all have that we have, um, perhaps not all that we, we, that we have, but we have had, we will have. And I want to answer a couple questions this morning. Have you ever thought to yourself, any of these, what is my purpose? In life, what is my purpose? I mean, was I? Was my purpose just to get up and go to work nine to five and raise kids and do the same thing every single day? Is that my purpose? Is my purpose to volunteer at a ministry? Is my purpose to volunteer in the church? What is my purpose? And when I when I'm asking these questions, I need you to understand. I'm talking that deep down, sincere, like surely God was I made for more? Was I made for more than this? Was I made to just work? Was I made to just pay bills? Was I made to just do this, do that, and the other? And then lastly, I don't know if everybody can feel this way. I think if you'd be honest, you would say, I've asked myself this question. Why am I never satisfied? How many of you know you can chase the dollar all you want, but the more money you get, what happens? The more problems you have, right? We know this, more money, more problems. You can reach a certain level of status and be content for a moment, but that will change because you'll find yourself in a season of unrest. It doesn't matter what amount of satisfaction you acquire, you will always eventually want more. You can buy a nice car and be really, really happy with it, and if you're anything like me, 12 months later, maybe 6 months later, I want something bigger, better, shinier, and newer. I remember the house that we live in now, my wife and I, we had, when we first got married, we lived in a garage apartment. It was a two-car garage and, like, literally just apartment above it. And you know what? We loved it. One bedroom, one bathroom, a bowling alley living room, the smallest kitchen. Like, we'd have to walk like this in between each other and there. And you know what? We loved it. We loved it. And then God provided the place that we live in now. We've been living there for seven years, six years, something like that. And you know what? When we moved in there, we were like, thank you, Jesus. This is amazing. We love it. You know what happens today? We hate it. We, don't, we want something bigger, we want something better, and we want something newer. And so we all get there. We all get there. If it's a job status, if it's a social status, there's never any true contentment because it does not last. If you have ever asked yourself, what is my purpose? Was I made for more? Or why am I never satisfied? I think the Word of God's going to answer that today. There's a guy named Ralph Waldo Emerson. He said this. He said, the purpose of life is to not be happy. Well, that's disappointing, isn't it? Right? It's to be useful. 
Let me ask you something. How many of you are useless? Honestly. Particularly, let me, let me talk to the children of God in here this morning. How many of you are useless in his kingdom? That's a hard pill to swallow, right? The purpose of life is to not be happy. It's to be useful, to be honorable, to be compassionate. You know that Ralph was talking to Christians when he wrote this. To have it make some difference that you lived, leave me here, and lived well. I mean this with all my, in fact, it's why I'm in ministry, aside from a call. I mean, that's a pretty big deal to be called in ministry. But I'm in this, I commit my life to this, to make a difference in people, Jeremy. If I didn't think that I was, I assure you, I'd go work somewhere where I don't take the baggage home. I'd go, I'd go work somewhere where I can make a lot of money and not have to deal with church people getting mad every time I make a decision they don't agree with. But I commit my life to this because I believe to some degree God is using me to make a difference. And can I be honest with you? That's all I really care about in life. At the end of the day, I want to make a difference in my, the, the life of my wife, Harper and Jude, then this church. That's what I care about. I mean it. That's what I, I'm just a normal guy just like you. That's just trying to be obedient to God to say, Lord, use me to make a difference in your kingdom. Now, I'm not suggesting that you can't make a, a kingdom-sized difference in your workplace because I know that many of you, uh, you're not a pastor like me. You don't do ministry full-time. But you have a ministry that God has given you. And I'm not suggesting you can't make a difference in your workplace. But what I am saying is this. We did a series a couple weeks ago that making a difference of eternal significance will often happen in the life of a cross follower through the local church. I believe that. And really, at the, when my life is over, I understand and am fully aware that many people will not even remember who I am. And I'm absolutely okay with that. But I pray that God will somehow allow me to have had a handprint on changing their heart and their eternity or the, the trajectory of their life was impacted by a ministry at 403 Market Street. Because I too have wondered in my life, what is my purpose? Has anybody ever just, you ever had that day at work where you're like, is this all it's ever going to be? Like, is this it? This is it. I'm going to work my rear end off trying to get promoted to make more money. That won't satisfy me. If it does, it's just temporary. And you know why, if you've ever asked yourself those questions, you know why that is? I'm going to answer you in just a little bit. The Word of God is. But it's because we are in a temporary place of existence. I've used this illustration before, and I should have done it, but I don't have it now where I pull out this rope, and I'm like, hey, this is a timeline of your life, but I'm covering up this little black two inches part of electrical tape to show you that that is our time on earth. And we work so hard to have bigger houses and more money and nicer things, but man, listen, this is what I know that age is relative, but the older I get, I realize that life goes by like this. You don't believe me? Have you a couple kids that you can measure time by? Boom. My life is, just like Job, my life is like a flower. I'm just withering away. We've talked about this all the time, but when babies are born, you know what happens, really? I mean, I'm not trying to be morbid, but they're actually born into death. And we like celebrate, and we're like, yay, and it is great. 
but they're born into death. And when the cross follower is made alive, new in Christ, we're like, hey, that's great. You need to get into a Sunday school class or a city group class or you need to start studying the Bible. When they're actually just made alive for the first time and they no longer have to fear death. And this is what I've been guilty of myself. Even in working for the church, because let me say something heavy to you that many of you won't understand, but maybe you can be sympathetic to. There's been time where this church has been my mistress. And we can get so caught up working and working and working that we actually miss our purpose. We can get so upset that we don't get to go to the beach for a week this year. Big deal. Am I getting heavy already? I was going to say, is this me or is it you? But I quickly realized it's me. There's some scripture in Ephesians chapter 2, and I want to be honest with you, goodness gracious. It is probably some of the most deep theological texts that I know of. It's 10 verses that we're going to look at this morning. I, I told our first service, I could spend 10 weeks doing a verse each week. That's how deep it is. So I don't know that in 30 minutes that I can do justice on everything. But I'm going to teach and I'm going to preach this morning. And we will answer the question. We will find out who I really am. And when you leave here today, I hope you have a new perspective on your purpose. And you'll, you will have the answer to the question, what is my purpose? Was I made for, for made for more? And why am I never satisfied? In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus. It's where we get the book Ephesians. And it's incredibly deep. It's incredible, incredibly rich. But he's talking about as we go from death to life. Death to life. This is who I am. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Let me hear. And Paul, he starts off, I love it. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you're going to see this is where we're going. There are many forms of life, right? There's physical life, there's human life, there's mental life, there's spiritual life, there's emotional life. There's all these different types of life. And what Paul is going to suggest is that it's possible to be alive in one yet dead to another. And he says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. He, remember, he's writing to a church, so you must understand that. He's writing to believers who are now committed to Christ. You were dead when God found you. And this is how I want to explain it. Think of trespasses. You ever seen these no trespassing signs? Danger. We talked about, hey, like if, you, if you're around here in the south and you cross one of these, you might wind up like on Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, right? They, may, they might not see you no more if you, if you go across some private properties. But when Paul says you were dead in your trespasses, the idea about a no trespassing sign today is there's a boundary and you are not allowed to cross it. And if you do, you can be subject to being in trouble, arrested, fined, shot here in the South. If you're watching from somewhere else, I don't know what it's like there, but that's how it is here. When Paul says you were dead in your trespasses, what it means is that we were constantly living a life in rebellion of a mindset and place that we should never have been. See, there's this good warming feeling that we like we're all good people. No, not none of us good. Not one is righteous. When God found you in your trespass and sin, you were on a place that you should have never been in constant rebellion. That's what it means when he says no trespassing. There was this boundary that God had set, and from the beginning of the fall of humanity and Genesis with Adam and Eve, we constantly, now we by our very nature, we live in trespass. 
and rebellion against God. When he says sin, the literal content there, the literal meaning is to miss the mark. I want you to think of like an archer that's shooting at a target. Please bring that up. I want you to imagine an archer who's constantly pulling back and they're trying to hit the bullseye, but they never can. That's what it means to be sinful in our sin, that we always miss the mark. How many of you have felt this way? If you're in Christ, Christ is in you. You try to do good, but the very thing you don't want to do, you do do, right? You do do. <laughs> Y'all raised your hands. I was like, that's kind of gross for adults, but... That is the concept, that is the, not the concept, it is the meaning of what Paul is talking about, that when God found us, we were dead in rebellion across the boundary we should have never been, and no matter how good we tried to be, we can never hit the mark. That's what sin means, to miss the mark. You ever felt like, I just can't get it right? You ever felt like, why do I keep making mistakes? It's because you can't hit the mark. You were dead in your trespasses, you were dead in your sins. Verse 2, carrying that on, he, carried, he continues the sentence. He says, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. Remember, he's talking to a believer, so he's talking about where God found them. They're, they're no longer that way. And let me tell you something. If a dead person was in a coffin, would they be comfortable? Well, they wouldn't know because they're dead, but they belong in a coffin, right? Unless you're in a cremation, things like that. But dead people are comfortable in places they should be, right? If you were alive in Christ yet you still feel comfortable dead in your sin, you better check yourself. You previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises, exercises authority over the lower heavens. He is talking about the enemy here. When he says lower heavens, what he means is the realm that we live in. The spirit now working in the disobedient. So here's another uh, inclination uh, that we see, or indication that not only were we dead in trespasses and sins, but we were just flat out disobedient. Verse 3 says, We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And listen to this. Let me hear. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. I've shared this with um, our church before. But there's this in the South, in the Bible, but there's this really good feeling that we're all children of God. We're all God's children. God loves all his children. Those are two different statements. Yes, he loves all his children, but we are not all his children. Let me clarify for you really quickly. My biological father's name is Steve Wills. He and my mother created me and gave, my mother gave birth to me. Steve never was a part of my life. Not from a boy to a young man to a grown man. He's now deceased. Fifteen years ago, he passed away. He never acted as my father, okay? However, he was my creator. And just men in here, men watching online, just because you can conceive a child and help create one doesn't make you a father. You've got to be walking with them. Steve created me, but he was not my father. The same is true with our creator in heaven. He created all of humanity. But according to the Gospel of John, only those who believe in His name and walk with Him did He give right to be children of God. So you need to be careful next time you throw out that, well, we're all God's children. That's, well, that's opinion. The Word of God says, no, only those who believe in Him are His children. So if we're not a child of God, then by our very nature, 
we are children of the enemy in wrath against God. We just sing that, I don't even know if you understand what we're singing when we sing Reckless Love. He says, when I was your foe, still your love fought for me. You were a foe, dead in your trespassing sins when he fought for you, when he found you. I love this right here, verse 4. It says, but God. When we talked about this, this, this came up a couple months ago. We went into the season where we were just saying, hey, I was addicted, but God. I was depressed, but God gave me joy. I went through a divorce, but God gave me new love again. My finances were struggling, but God made a way. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, listen, it's his great love that he had for us, he's speaking to believers, made us alive with the Messiah, even though, let me hear, we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. When did God start loving you? When you were spiritually dead. Not when you got it all together, not when you figured it out, not when you went to school and made good grades, not when you begin to tithe, not when you begin to come to church religiously and have great attendance, not when you begin to speak the things of the Bible, not when you begin to understand the things of the Bible, but when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's when God's rich mercy, greatness, love, and grace came down, when you were dead and had nothing to offer. For some reason, I'm guilty of it as well, but the longer we get in Christ, longer meaning older, the more we understand, the more we try to walk with him, we forget where he found us, and now we try to earn it. If he loved you when you were spiritually dead, what can a dead person do for you? Nothing. And that's when God decided to love you. How foolish are we then to try to start earning it now? Do you get it? Like how deep that is? And we sang it too, that right? Like I don't deserve it, I couldn't earn it. And you know why it's hard to understand that kind of love? Because humanity doesn't have that kind of love for one another. We make people earn love. We make them earn forgiveness. And you know, not even that. We just flat out choose not to forgive. We harbor these feelings. We harbor these emotions that we know we're wrong. But you know what? We are still part of us walking in trespasses and sin. We don't want to forgive. We don't want to forget. We want to linger. And some of y'all are crazy. You love, to, you love to wallow in pity parties. If you could, you'd have a pity party on Facebook and invite people. You're saved by grace. He made us alive. He made us alive. It's nothing you did. I feel like this is maybe one of the most important messages I could ever teach. And I don't know that I can, I don't know that I can articulate it the way that the Father gave it to me, but I just trust that His Word won't return void. But somebody needs to know this. If you're in Christ and He is in you, He found you in a place where you were spiritually dead. You had nothing to offer. There was nothing you could do. You need to be reminded today. That no matter what you do, it was the love that he had for you. And you need to quit looking at him, our Father in heaven, as how people have treated you here on earth. Because people on earth, they hurt you, they lie. I experience this as a pastor all the time. It's unfair and unchristian, I think. But one minute they love you, I swear to you, the next minute they hate you. One minute they look you in the eye and say, I thank you, Pastor. And the very next moment, you can't even get them to text you back anymore. I'm serious. And so I can, I can get jaded sometimes. 
you could as well. You've been through relationships that have hurt you, that have broken you, you've invested and been drained. But our Father in heaven is not like that. Don't compare him to the person sitting beside you. Don't compare him to the best love you've ever experienced here on earth because it's not even close. And it says you are saved by grace. Thank God for grace. Let's continue learning what grace is, verse 6. It says, together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens. I asked our first service this earlier. It says that he seated us in the heavens. Well, how many of you are here right now? I love when I ask stuff like that because some of y'all that are with me, you like start thinking really deep. You're like, is this a trick question? Is he fixing to do something? No, you're physically, you're here in this auditorium. Is that true or false? Okay, some of you are still like, I don't know what's... What's the right answer? Listen to what it says. Together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens where? With whom? In Christ Jesus. So what this means is we are not there in heaven just yet. For those of us who have him in us, that's where we're going. But what it means is right now he is seated at the right hand throne of God, and because we are in him, we get to experience a little bit of heaven in us. Somebody should have just got happy, and if we weren't having such, so many mock problems, I swear, Cody, I'd throw this mock to the back of that wall right then. <laughs> Seated in heavens in Christ Jesus, verse 7, so that the coming ages, in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches, let me hear, of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. When it says that in the coming ages, he might display, what Paul is saying there is that God will never quit loving us on the basis of grace. That's where he found you. That's how he'll lead you. And one day, for those of us in Him, that's how He'll welcome us home. All by His grace. Nothing more. And what I love about this word is it says that it's immeasurable. And you know what's shameful? Is we try to measure it sometimes. We measure it by our works. We measure it by how good we're being or how bad we're not being. We measure it by what we think we deserve, but Paul says it's immeasurable. You know why that's hard to understand as well? Because we also compare God's grace to the grace that we've been given by humanity. Can I tell you what else is a tad bit shameful too? We receive immeasurable grace. And I, listen, you could read that every single day. You can read that every single moment. That's how much grace you get, immeasurable. Every, it's not just when you pray to prayer. You receive it every single day until the day that you walk through those gates. And hopefully we'll hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. But what's also shameful about some cross followers, and I've been guilty of it as well, is the very thing that only God could give us, the only thing that we needed, now that we have, is the least likely thing that we extend to our brothers and sisters. Are you glad that God doesn't hold a grudge like we do? Yeah, you better be. 
Matter of fact, we all better just pray right now in case he does and ask for forgiveness. I'm so glad that he doesn't hold grudges against eggs. I'm so glad that he doesn't hold grudges against past employers. More importantly than anybody else, I'm so glad that he doesn't hold grudges against me for what I've done to him. Verse 8, he says, listen, here we go. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is, let me hear, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. What we must understand here is that it is initiated by God. However, though the the grace comes from divinity, faith has to be responded through humanity. So what I mean is the grace comes down and we respond. But it's all about His grace. It always has been. It always will be. It's God's grace, His goodness that saves us. It is not ourselves. It says this is not from yourselves. Somebody this morning, somebody watching online, you're making your relationship with God about you and what you do. And it's never been about you. It's God's gift. And he says this in verse 9. It's not from works. Let me hear. So that no one can boast. Because we are naturally sinful, we're selfish, we are a group of people that love to take credit for everything. Right? I got this great job. I graduated from college on the dean's list. I make really good money. I drive a really nice car. Ah, ah, ah. And I'm just so grateful that it has nothing to do with us because that means you can't boast about anything. The most prideful person in here, that ought to hurt your feelings a little bit because it has nothing to do with you. It's the goodness of God. It is the goodness of Him. And I don't even know that I can do a good job, so even Spirit, you just do what you can do in hearts now as I speak. Do you know how much freedom you would find if you would walk in the grace of God instead of the rules of man? And here's what I know about myself. I feel like I was talking to my wife about it the other day. We were having a spiritual conversation. I know these things. I preach these things. Yet I still don't always do these things. But you know what happens when you walk in grace? You don't have time to listen to the haters. You don't have time to listen to the naysayers. And when I walk in the fullness of God's grace, I don't have time to listen to my own self. But you know what happens when you walk in that grace and there's that freedom? It's almost like there's this this tension of people are like, well, he doesn't even care what he's doing. Or she doesn't even care what she's doing. There's a freedom in it. When you stop, I'm not saying that you shouldn't care about people, but to the point that it dictates your perspective of yourself. Listen, I'm talking to the people pleaser in here right now. And you know who you are. Could you imagine if you could just take that mask off and remove that weight from you? If you walked, this is not from works. It's totally initiated by God from God. That's how we're saved. That's how we're reconciled to the Father. And I want to share something with you that I don't even really feel like I'm going this direction. 
but I taught it this way earlier, and maybe now the sensitive is being, I'm being sensitive to the spirit, but I want to just share a thought with those of you. Maybe you're watching online, and we use this word a lot, I'm saved, I'm saved. Did you get saved? Have you been saved? Are you saved? Salvation is a gift from God, grace through our faith, that if you will, reconciles us back to the Father, allows us to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit, walk in one with Him, and at the end, we get to be in heaven. The good news today is that we have some heaven in us. But salvation, I want to suggest a thought to you that does, it does not happen in a moment. Salvation doesn't happen like this. Let me give you an example. If there was someone sitting in this auditorium, there was someone sitting, you're at a revival, you're here this morning, you've been to church, you, you've experienced this, and, and the, the preacher says, all those who want to accept Jesus Christ, come forward to the altar and pray this prayer, and you'll receive him as the Lord of your life. Anybody in this, yeah, grown up in something like that, you, you went to, a, yeah? Well, suppose that man or woman is sitting somewhere in here, and did you listen? I'm, I'm man. You got to hear me on this, okay? Because I'm going to ruffle some feathers, or I'm going to set some freedom here, okay? Did you know when you make it about you having to do anything in salvation that you're actually now you're contradicting the word of God? You're making it about works. What if that person sitting in the auditorium was told, "Hey, come forward, pray right here at this uh, this this altar, and you'll receive him." Well, let me ask you a hypothetical question. Suppose that person stands up to walk down to the altar and they have a massive heart attack and die right then. Don't answer me. But were they saved when they stood up to respond? Or did they not get saved because they weren't able to come down here? How many of you would say the very first time that you heard about Jesus, the very first time that you prayed a prayer of salvation, got saved, whatever you want to call it? So it didn't happen in a moment. How many of you would say it was months, it was years, it was weeks, it was decades, it was drug use, it was divorce, it was pain, it was turmoil, it was depression, years later, hearing Jesus, that you committed your life? Now, you could say it happened in that moment, but what you didn't know, and maybe what I hope you understand now, is that God was drawing you in a long time before you responded to that grace. You know, and listen, guess where he found you? When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and he still drew you in. I'm going to take a hard turn really quickly. And then we're going to come back and we're going to answer these questions. What is my purpose? Am I made for more? Why am I never satisfied? I want you to look at this painting. This is a painting by uh, an artist named Jasper John. Best I can tell is there's some splattered paint. Looks like there's some words that are all capitalized. 
How many of you, being honest, how many of you would buy this painting? Nobody. This painting sold for $80 million. <clears throat> and I'm a preacher. You know I wouldn't lie at church. <clears throat> I mean, I get that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but $80 million? $80 million? Pull up this next one. This is a painting by a man named William de Kooning. He calls he had he, he painted a series of women, as if this justifies a beautiful woman, or <laughs> is a picture of one. And this was called Woman Three. And I'm serious, man. I think I've been in one of these antique stores down here on Market Street and seen something like this. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I have. This painting right here sold for $137.5 million. Is that ludicrous? It's crazy. It's crazy. $137.5 million. $137. It's hard for me even to understand that kind of money. This is a sunflower painting by an artist named William Van Gogh. And I really mean this. I said this earlier, but I'm almost positive I've seen a painting just like this walking down the hallway at my daughter's elementary school. Pretty, I mean, it's just sunflowers, right? It's sunflowers. This sunflower painting sold for $37.9 million. That's crazy, right? You couldn't pay me to take any of these pictures. I mean, honestly, and I mean this with all due respect, some of this stuff looks like stuff you'd find in the back of car that grandma's gave away, right? But there was something about the people that purchased these paintings that would make them give so much for something. You have a Father in Heaven that saw something in you that would make Him give His only Son for you. And I want to be honest, my wife is an artistic type. She's a creative type. I feel like I have bits and pieces of that in me. But there's nothing about these paintings that would make me say, no, nah, I'm good. I'm $137 million for that one? Come on. $37 million for some sunflower painting. But somebody saw this as a beautiful piece of work. This next painting, though, it's priceless. This is a self-portrait that my daughter drew of herself two weeks ago. And I think she, she was standing in the kitchen the other day and looking at it. We, of course, we hung it up because that's what parents do, right? She was staring at it and she was like, this is awful, she said. <laughs> but you know what? As her father, it's absolutely beautiful to me. Because she doesn't see herself the way that I see her. 
Many of you under the sound of my voice, you don't see yourself the way the Father sees you. Just as we saw those paintings that seem ludicrous to give that much money for, you have people in your life and you're saying, hey, they're not really worth that much. I'm not really worth that much. But God would say, I'll give my only son so that you can be made alive with me. And matter of fact, I'm going to do it when there's nothing you can do about it. You're going to be dead in your trespasses and sins, and I'm still going to do it. And that's worth, that's millions and billions eternity. And so you see that work and you're like, man, that's crappy. I see this picture. My daughter thinks it's awful, but I see a beautiful soul that's being expressed. What is my purpose? Am I made for more? Why am I never satisfied? Am I a beautiful piece of artwork? Look what Paul says. For we are God's masterpiece. You are a masterpiece in God's eyes. You're way worth more than 37 million, 137 million. You're worth death so that you can be brought to life. It says He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can, here's my purpose, here's my purpose, so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. If you've ever found yourself wondering, was I made for more? What's my purpose? Why am I never satisfied? It's because the Creator of the world wants to be your Father. He's made you a masterpiece masterpiece, and has incredible plans for you. If your soul ever hungers and you're wondering, is this who I am? The answer is no, unless you're answering yes to this. See, this is who I am. A masterpiece, fearfully made, wonderfully made, lavished upon, made new in the world, made new in Him when I was dead and had nothing to offer. Somebody ought to leave this morning saying, hey, this is who I am. It's an overwhelming love. Come on, let's stand. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you'd like to stay connected with everything that's happening at City Lights, then be sure and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and also by subscribing to our YouTube channel.